Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14 and 18, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you this morning. Uh, We have been in a series this whole summer, uh, which I'll explain as we go along, uh, talking about some of the various trials and struggles that we are called to go through. And so this morning you can see that as we outlined this this series months ago, we thought, you know, we're going to have to deal with death because of all the things that most frighten us, that we most cower before, uh, death is probably the greatest. At least that's the way the scriptures represent that. And so this morning, that's our topic. But before we get into that, I did want to say, you know, the, the topic last week, uh, timely as it might have been, and I heard from many of you that it was very helpful, and I'm grateful for that. I wasn't able, and I never am able, there's never enough time uh, to say everything uh, that you want to say about a given topic, and it's hard to be nuanced. And so as I walked away from, from last week, there were really two things uh, that stuck out to me as I continue to meditate on those passages in First Peter that I, I wanted to share with you this morning, and they lead into what we want to talk about this morning. And so, again, if you weren't here last week, then, then just, just hang with me for about two minutes as I do this. But from First Peter, there's this statement in First Peter 4.17 where Peter, in writing about our subjection to political entities and, and the governors of our, of our day, he just says there in the middle, he says, it's time for the judgment Excuse me, it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And Peter means that when we're facing times like the times we're facing in our culture today, when things seem to be disintegrating all around us, instead of looking around and beginning to pronounce judgment here and here and here and cast blame, Peter says we should turn inward. And so what matters most in our current cultural moment is not how the culture is changing. Not nearly as much as what, what will make the difference going forward is how the church begins to change to respond, to meet the new challenges that we face. So the most important thing happening in the world today is what's happening among God's people. It's always been the case. When a company faces a public relations problem, the healthiest way to deal with it 
My football team's going through this at the moment, actually, which I'm sure many of you are relishing. What you do is you do an internal audit. You know, you, you go inward and you try to deal with things, at least you should, and then once you've done that, then you go public with the findings. And so I think what Peter's saying is it's time to ask hard questions, not to make bold statements. It's time to confess sin, not to point it out in others. That's the kind of thing Peter's talking about. And I didn't want to miss the opportunity to say that. But the second thing that really stuck out to me in that passage from last week that I want to build on this morning was the verse in chapter 2 where Peter says, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Listen to that. It's a, graceful, it's a gracious thing when one mindful of God endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. It's hard to endure sorrow when you've been mistreated. I want, it's hard to, to live in the sorrow when you've been mistreated. Our natural reaction when we feel sad especially in our culture, is to get away from the, fat, the sadness as fast as we possibly can. Because when you're sad, you're not in control, and we like control. And so the best way to stay in control or to regain control is to take your sadness and to do everything you can to turn it into anger. Because anger comes from a position, you're, you're in control when you're angry. The, the, the hardest thing to do, the hardest thing to do is to just endure the sadness. That's Peter's instruction. He says, mindful of God, endure sorrow. He says, don't let your sorrow, don't let your sadness become anger. Trust God. Stay in the sadness. And then, out of your sadness, begin to speak the truth and to do good. And that's where I think, that's exactly where I think that we should be try, to, try to be living. And the reason is, it's so important, is because when you're speaking truth out of a place of sadness, it's very different than truth that's spoken out of a place of anger. Right? Everybody knows that. If, you're, if you've been married for very long at all, you know that. And you can tell the difference. And we need to be speaking out of a broken heart. Not, about, not out of righteous indignation. But it takes incredible courage. Incredible courage to stay there. To stay in the sadness. Most of the time, anger is cowardly. It's the easy way out. Enduring sadness instead of... Getting angry while suffering unjustly is heroic. Doing the right thing when it's hard, that's courage. There's lots of things going around about how we would define courage in our culture. Doing the right thing when it's hard. Not doing the right thing when it's easy. Not doing the hard thing because it's hard. Doing the right thing when it's hard. That's how we would define courage. And that really, if I had to boil it down, is the theme of this summer series. How do we have courage? What's courage look like? C.S. Lewis called courage the most important of the classical virtues. He said, because if you don't have courage, then you don't get any of the rest of them either. Because you'll quit too quick to become a person of character. You have to stay at it in order to become a person of character. And so we've been meditating week after week uh, on the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, where he described his ministry with these words. He says, at every turn, we were afflicted, fighting without and fear within. And yet, when Paul describes his inner, emotional, uh, his inner emotional state in the middle of all this, he says, I'm filled, though I'm at every turn afflicted, fighting without, fear within. I'm overwhelmed because of external pressures. I'm overwhelmed internally because I'm just, you know, falling apart inside. Yet, he's able to say of his inner condition in the midst of that, I'm filled with comfort, and all of my affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. So Paul courageously endured his sadness, the fightings without, the fears within, 
And what happened is, is it began to be transformed into comfort and joy. And that's what propelled his gospel ministry. And we need it too. And so this passage here in 1 Thessalonians is about living with courage in the face of the thing that for many of us, and we may not even be aware of it, I would say for all of us is the greatest threat and the greatest fear that we live with, and that is the fear of death. But the fear of death is pervasive. It, per, it comes in and kind of seeps into all of our lives in places and in, in ways that we don't even realize. And so that's the topic this morning. And if you see the outline that I've made for you there, we're going to look at these three things. We're going to talk about first the fear of death, and then really what lays behind the fear of death, which is the sting of death, but then the ultimate gospel hope is that in Jesus Christ we can experience, and we, in fact we live in light of the death of death. So the fear of death, the sting of death, and the death of death. Let's talk about those three things as we walk along together this morning, okay? So first, what we see here is what steals our courage away from us most often is uh, the fear of death. It was Shakespeare's Hamlet who said, Fear of death makes cowards of us all. And I found this modern rendering of that whole passage in, in, in Shakespeare's play that was really, really remarkable. So let me just read some of it to you. This is Hamlet speaking. He said, Who would, uh, who, uh, would um, up with all of life's humiliations? Who'd put up with that? The insults of arrogant men, the pangs of unrequited love, the mistreatment good people have had to take from bad when you could simply take out your knife and call it quits. Who would choose to grunt and sweat through an exhausting life unless they were afraid of something dreadful after death? The undiscovered country from which no visitor returns, which we wonder about without getting any answers from, and which makes us stick to the evils that we know rather than to rush off to seek the ones we don't. Fear of death, he says, makes us all cowards, and our natural boldness becomes weak with too much thinking. Now that's exactly what's happened to the Thessalonians. Look here, twice Paul tells them, verse 18 of chapter 4 and then verse 11 of chapter 5, encourage one another with these words. What he's writing to them about, encourage one another, build one another up. They're lacking courage, that's their problem. And the reason is, is that Jesus has been longer in coming than they've expected him to be, and many of their number have begun to fall, to die, to fall asleep. So you see verse 13? We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, Paul writes, about those who are asleep. And so... The death of their friends and loved ones has shaken them up. They're suffering from a fear of death. There's an even more pointed reference in the the assurance of pardon passage that Jonathan read a minute ago from Hebrews, where Hebrews says that Jesus has delivered, and here's the quote, he's delivered those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So it's a real problem. It's a real problem. In 1973, Ernest Becker wrote a book that won the Pulitzer Prize, and it was called The Denial of Death. And his thesis was this, to quote him. He says, The idea of death, the fear of it, haunts humanity like nothing else. It's the mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying it in some way, and to to, to just refuse to acknowledge that it's the final destiny for man. So Ernest Becker was a psychoanalyst and not a Christian, as far as I can tell. But he's really on to something, which is why his book won the Pulitzer. That the real fear looming underneath all the other fears in our life is, according to the Bible, the fear of death. And this fear of death is, at what he's, what he's describing in his book is that the fear of death is actually at the motivational core of our lives. So much of what we do, of our, the, the decision making that we engage in, we're, we're doing these things to avoid death because we're deathly afraid of it. According to Becker, the best evidence for his thesis, is to look around. He says, just look around at the culture 
Look and see how hard we are all trying to avoid our fear by repressing it. We're in denial. We're in denial about death, thus the title of his book. So among the young, there's this flippant uh, air of invincibility that has been afforded to us by our affluence and technological advances. But then you have, you have so many evidences in our society that we are absolutely obsessed with the fountain of youth. Eating healthy, right? Staving off disease with essential oils, right? <laughs> there you see? The fitness craze, the prevalence of plastic surgery, all of these things, which I'm, I'm in favor of some of those things, you know? The, they're just a few examples. Instead of being honest, this is what Becker says, that instead of being honest about the inevitability of death and facing our fear, we rush around trying to beat it, trying to hold off the moment of brutal honesty for as long as we possibly can. So we invest tens of thousands of dollars or more on strategies that in the end might buy us one or two or maybe five years. Because it's worth it. Because we're scared to death. Now the result, according to the Bible, is slavery. That the fear of death enslaves. That's what Hebrews says. But what is this slavery? Well, according to Shakespeare's Hamlet, it is our natural boldness becoming weak that we really see our courage dissipate under the threat of death. We lose our courage. We stop living heroically. So John Piper, commenting on Becker's book in a sermon, said this. He says, the fear of death, this is really, really good. The fear of death produces a pervasive, lifelong bondage, even when we don't realize it. Fear begins to haunt our choices, making us cautious, worried, restrained, confined, narrow and tight and robs us of risk and adventure and dreams for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and the cause of love in the world. Isn't that good? He says, whenever, without even knowing it, without even knowing it, the fear of death is a slave master binding us with invisible ropes, confining us to small, safe, innocuous, self-centered ways of life. That is the bondage of death. The bondage of the fear of death. It takes away freedom and the kind of risk-taking adventuresomeness for God that we were made to live with. And it's what's happened to our friends here in Thessalonica. If we could take the whole time to read this whole letter, which we don't have time to do this morning, we would see that their problem is that they've become too cautious. Their fear uh, and their concern over these things has solidified into inaction. They've become petrified, quite literally, to where they're doing nothing. They've become crippled by it. And so we read in verse 14 of chapter 5, but then in 2 Thessalonians in more detail, their problem, according to Paul, is their idleness. They're not doing anything. They're, they're, they're just sitting around waiting for something to happen instead of engaging and being proactive in their lives. Um, they, they, you know, they've opted for small, safe, self-centered ways of living. So Paul writes in his second letter to them later, He says, we command you, brothers, to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. For you know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. So for Paul, see, Paul's Christianity was toil and labor night and day, right? When we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, he says. We were afflicted at every turn, fightings without, fears within. Paul's life was full of adventure and risk-taking for the sake of gospel advance. He courageously charged towards self-sacrifice and even the threat of death. His way of life, though, is in contrast to these Thessalonians who have become idle, 
frozen by their fear, bound in chains to small, safe, self-centered ways of living. They're asleep. That's the metaphor he uses, isn't it? Look at verse 6 and, and following. They're asleep, he says, when they should be awake and sober. In other words, they lack, they lack a certain initiative, a certain, a certain amount of rigor and planning and strategy and discipline in executing their plans that Paul says should be true of them. And so if you think even about that illustration, nighttime versus daytime, right? What are the things, the daytime is when you go to work and you, and you, you, know, you, you work hard and you put the hours in and you grind it out and then you come home and what do you do at night? You lay on the couch or you eat dinner with your family and sit down with a nice book and relax and kind of just take it easy. And Paul's saying, Paul's saying that our Christianity isn't after our stuff. Christianity is not nights and weekends. It should be approached with the same kind of rigor and vigor and discipline that we approach our jobs too, because that the Thessalonians have lost this. There's a mission, Paul says, an adventure, and you're missing it, he's telling these people. So put on your armor, verse 8, the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation, but they, and we, I think, are too much like Bilbo Baggins at the beginning of The Hobbit. We don't want any adventures here, thank you, he says to Gandalf the wizard, if you remember that passage. We are a plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things they are make you late for lunch. I can't see what anyone sees in them. Right? Paul's gospel was, or excuse me, Paul's goal was gospel heroism. But the Thessalonians' goal was self-preservation. And that's what the fear of death will do. So what does it look like for us to be adventurous? To be adventurous like our friends the Ellswicks have been who sold their home and took their four little girls to Nicaragua because people there need the gospel. Or for the group that's going to leave this church and go to the southwest part of our city to plant a church. What does it look like for us to be adventuresome in relationships, to risk, to live with a broken heart for the sake of loving the person that we're called to love? What does it look like for us to be adventuresome in our choices of work and play and all these kinds of things, because that is ultimately what we're called to, and it's the fear of death that's keeping us from that. So secondly, though, what Ernest Becker goes on to say and what he uncovers about our fear of death uh, is very helpful, but at the end he doesn't really have an answer for why we're so afraid. He knows that we're afraid, but he doesn't really know why, and the good news is that the Bible does know why. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, which, which Jonathan's already mentioned, there's a sting in death. Uh, and that word sting is the word uh, that the, the, the Greek word for a cattle prod. It's a long stick with a pointy end that farmers use to poke the oxen to spur them on when they're pulling the plow. You know, the whole strategy is you inflict pain and that gets the oxen moving. And so the farmer uses fear to motivate the oxen to plow the field. So it's a helpful metaphor. It's what Ernest Becker is trying to say that the fear of death that we live with is spurring us on all along through our life, haunting us, stinging us, enslaving us. And so it makes us like an animal that's been beaten too often. You know what I'm, right? Cautious and wary and cowering and cynical. It prods us along, leading us towards small, safe, self-centered lives. But what is the sting? So let me read very briefly from this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what Paul says. He says, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin 
is the law. In other words, the reason we're so afraid of death is because whether we're willing to admit it or not, whether we even know it on a conscious level or not, we all know that God is waiting for us on the other side of death, and we've offended him, and he's angry with us. The sting of death is sin, the Bible says. The fear of death that enslaves is the fear of meeting God in judgment. It's exactly what we read in this passage in 1 Thessalonians. Look down in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. The apostle Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that we might live with him. Why were the Thessalonians living the way they were in the grips of the fear of death? Because the thought, the thought of death overwhelmed them because they thought death meant wrath. That they thought what awaited them on the other side. These are Christian people and yet they're acting this way. That, that what they expect to await them on the other side of death was condemnation and wrath. So this is really profound. And it's why I love the Bible so much because it's so elegant. It gives us a psychology of sin here that's really, really helpful in a very unique way. In a story about a man and a woman in a garden in Genesis. And the holy God, the creator, would come walking in this garden where the man and the woman were. And he would talk with them. And he was their father and their friend. And the holy God had a standard there in that story. And the man and the woman did not abide by his standard. They sinned. They did what he forbade them to do. And when they had sinned, they heard the sound of the holy God coming again into the garden. But this time, instead of running to meet him like they had every other time before, they knew their nakedness and were ashamed, and so they hid And when the Holy God finally caught up to them and asked them why, this is what they said. We heard you. We heard the sound of you in the garden and we were afraid because we were naked. And so we hid. We were afraid, they said. And it's true of every single one of us. We are afraid of coming face to face with God because we're naked And we're ashamed and we have no way of clothing ourselves against the searching eyes of his justice. Just the thought, just the thought of facing him in judgment reduces us to ash. There aren't very many kids left in the room, but those of you who, kids, uh, have you ever had this happen in the middle of the day? This used, this, I, can't, I can remember some times in the summer when this happened to my sister and I. Uh, in the middle of the day, during the summer, you do something really stupid, really bad, and somehow your mom finds out. But instead of punishing you, which is what you would prefer, she says those fateful words. You know what they are, don't you? Wait until dad gets home. <laughs> right? What's the rest of the day like after that? It's horrible. I mean, I remember as a kid sitting on the couch just waiting, watching the minutes. I mean, literally, it's like the clock. Tick, tick, tick. Tick, because my dad didn't spank with his hand, right? Uh, which, of course, will get you in a lot of trouble these days. And then you're, you're there, and it's been a gut-wrenching day, and you finally, it's come towards the end of the day, and you hear the car door slam in the driveway. And what? You run, and you dive under the covers of your bed, and you pray to God for mercy. Because <laughs> dad's home. And the Bible says... That we go through life every day, every day, with the same state of mind that I had on those afternoons waiting for my dad to get home. Uh, and death is like hearing the car door slam in the driveway. That the, It means the reckoning is right around the corner, and it scares us to death. That's the sting of death. 
And Jesus told a story in the Gospels that illustrates what this sting of death will do in your life. He told a story about a nobleman who was about to set out on a journey, and he gathered three of his servants together, and to each of them he gave a sum of money. And he told them to take it and to do business with it while he was away so that when he came back, there would be a profit for him upon his return. We're told two of the servants did what the master told them to do. They boldly invested his money. And when he came back, they were able to give him the proceeds, which he was very grateful for. But there was one servant who, we're told, took the money and he buried it in the ground, and he did nothing with it. He let it sit there idle. And when the master asked him why, he said, it's because I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. See, the sting of death will make you a coward. If your perception of God is that he is severe, that he's not generous, that he can't wait to get you to the day of judgment so he can execute his wrath against you, If you think of him severe like that, you'll live your life minimizing risk, trying not to make mistakes, and it's just a bad way to live. We need courage. Instead of death making us cowards, it should make us courageous. That's Paul's argument here. And the teaching of Christianity on death is a source of incredible encouragement, which is why he keeps saying to these people, look what I'm telling you and encourage one another with these things. So let's end with that. Let's finish there with the death of death. Paul says... We are not destined for wrath, verse 9 of chapter 5, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that we might live with him. Now listen, if your faith is in Christ, if you're here and you're a Christian, what awaits you on the other side of death is not wrath but salvation. Right? That's what, by the way, I'm trying to train you guys. That's an amen moment right there. And and that because that is that is what matters that's what it's all about right there that what awaits us is not wrath jesus christ has taken away death's sting by according to paul dying for us by taking upon himself our sin he experienced god's wrath against our sin and so we sing till on the cross where jesus died the wrath of god is satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of christ i live isn't that a great line I mean, did you know there was a movement a few years ago to remove that line? The wrath of God is satisfied. It was offensive to people. No, we need that line. That's the whole point of the gospel. We need that line to be in the song. Right? Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Right? And that's why Paul can say we're not destined for wrath. If you're a Christian, you have no reason to fear facing God on the other side of death because there's nothing in you for him to condemn. In Jesus Christ, God has tread our sins underfoot and he has cast them into the depths of the sea and he remembers them no more. See, the gospel changes our experience of death itself. He died for us so that whether we are awake, we're told, verse 10, or asleep, we might live with him. Death does not mean the end of life. Death is the beginning of life, Paul says. It's when we really start to live. Paul, Paul calls it sleep. Isn't that funny? He says, no, they're not. He, doesn't, he won't even say they're dead. He says they're just asleep. It's a euphemism, and it's an important because he's, he's trying to minimize the reality that they live with. Um, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years, lost his wife when his daughter was still a little girl. And so he was trying to help her and himself process the loss that he couldn't, and he couldn't figure out how to put it into words for her. And then one day, 
uh, they were driving down the road in a huge moving truck. He told the story, passed, passed them. And as it passed, the shadow of the truck began to kind of loom over their car. And so it hit him. He turned to his daughter in the back seat and he said, Honey, would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? The little girl obviously said, By the shadow, of course, Daddy. That can't hurt us at all. And here's his reply. He said, Right. If the truck doesn't hit you but only its shadow, then you're fine. Well, it was only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She's actually alive. Far more alive than we are. And that's because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of death hit Jesus. And because death crushed Jesus and we believe in him, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the Bible says that Christians, though they die, they don't see death. Isn't that a strange way of saying that? That the promise for the Christian is that, that though we, we will face the inevitability of death, Jesus says that we will not see it and we will not taste it. We'll die, but we won't see it and we won't taste it. And I just would want to say to you, if you're not a Christian, don't you want to have those kinds of promises to be able to face this great fear? The shadow of death is all that's left for us. And what happens is, is this gives us, this gives us the courage that Paul's trying to work us towards. This gives us a radical new way of living in the world. No matter what the situation is that we're facing, the brokenness or the pain that we have to deal with, it gives us a new courage to grieve but not lose hope. That's what Paul says. Do you see that? It's that marvelous phrase in verse 13 there. Paul says that we should grieve. We are a people who grieve because... The world is no longer what it once was. The world is broken. Our relationships with one another are broken. We are often filled with sadness. It's the pain of the loss of Eden. But the response is not to shut down emotionally and try to suppress our sadness. That's unhealthy and it's terrible theology. That we are to be grieving, but in our grieving, Paul says we can't lose hope because though the world is not any longer what it once was, it is also not yet what it will one day be. And at the end of the Lord of the Rings, uh, Sam, Frodo's companion, wakes up after he's fallen asleep thinking he was going to die. And he asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened in the world is his question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And Jesus' answer to that is a resounding yes. Something has happened in the world that has changed everything. As the old hymn says, crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave who rose victorious through the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, listen, and lived that death may die. Have you ever had a nightmare that was so vivid? I had one last night, actually. I just remembered that. And it really interrupted my sleep. Have you ever had one like that? And you wake up in a cold sweat, panicked and afraid. And then the first moment, that first moment when you're awake, so unbelievably great, isn't it? Because you wake up and you realize, oh man, it was only a bad dream. It's only a bad dream. And everything bad that I was living through is coming untrue. It's morning. It was only a bad dream. And the sadness begins literally to come untrue. When Paul tells us that Jesus died for us so that we might live with him, he's claiming that Jesus is going to make all the sadness and all of the heartache we experience in this life, not to minimize it in the least bit, grieve it. But the promise is that all of the sadness and all of the heartache that we experience in this life, and even death, is going to become one day like a bad dream. So we can be completely honest, 
and at the same time unafraid, completely honest, not shut down emotionally, not repressing our fear of death, but dealing with it, grieving with it, complete, absolute emotional honesty, anger, sadness, whatever it might be, honesty, but at the always, at the same time, always, always filled with hope, always with courage. That's, that's the unique thing that Paul says the gospel can do in our lives, and it would change everything if we could become people who could live like that. Jonathan Edwards preached his first sermon when he was 18 years old. His topic was Christian happiness. Uh, And the doctrine of that sermon was that Christians should be filled with joy. They should be happy whatever their outward circumstances are. Man, isn't that hard? I mean, that's almost impossible to do. And so in his typical fashion, the sermon was an argument for his doctrine. And here is the argument. I'm just going to close with this. He said, here's the reason why no matter how painful your life is at the moment, no matter how deep the shadow of death may have passed over you in recent times, here is uh, the essence of the reason why we can at the same time be filled with hope. Edward said this. He said, number one, all of our bad things, the scripture promises, will ultimately work out for good. Number two, all of our good things, all of the good things, justification and adoption and, and the promise of heaven, all of the good things cannot be taken away from us. Number three, and all of our best things are yet to come. You hear that? All of, our, all of our bad things will work out for good. All of our good things cannot be taken away from us. And all of our best things are yet to come. So be filled with hope, even as you grieve. Because that honors and glorifies God greatly. And so let's pray together this morning. Will, will you pray with me? So Father, we do pray that you would come even in these last moments of this service uh, and help us. Lord Jesus, we we thank you for the scripture that says that you are a faithful high priest who's able to sympathize sympathize with us in our weakness uh, so that you can provide us help in our time of need and trouble. Uh, And Lord Jesus, you shook at death. Uh, You you, um, sweat great drops of blood at the thought of death because the sting of death was there before you because for you death would mean wrath it would mean facing uh, the father in judgment and and it was so overwhelming to you that you literally your body began to fall apart but if we believe in you lord jesus then for us the sting has been taken away for us death does not mean wrath it means salvation that is the promise of the gospel and so even as we sing about that great promise, would you do, as Paul urges these people in this passage, fill us with hope and confidence and courage so that we could repent well and move away, just refuse to live in the safe, small, self-centered ways that we've been living, that we might become full of bold risk-taking and adventuresomeness for you Uh, Because that is what you've called us to in our city, in our world. That is the kind of life that uh, the current movement of our culture is going to require of us in the coming days. We need you to do this great work in us, Father. And so we pray that you do it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. So as God sends us now, he sends us out into sadness. And and the reality, we've been saying this over and over again, haven't we? That uh, by being a Christian, it doesn't mean that there's no sadness waiting for you out these doors. In fact, it means there's probably more sadness for you. Because the call to follow Christ and take up your cross 
uh, is the call to stay, you know, in relationships with one another longer than it's comfortable sometimes, to, to live in the sadness and refuse to come out from underneath it for, for the sake of being mindful of him uh, who endured such cost uh, in loving us. And so we're sent into sadness, but we're sent with great hope. So we can be those who grieve, but who grieve not having lost hope. And the hope is just the words of this benediction, that he does not send us out alone. He sends us out with the promise of his power, the promise of his presence, uh, the promise of all of his provision uh, to, be f- to be for us, to be faithful to us in the work he's called us to do. Those are the promises of these words. And so receive them in faith and go uh, to take up your cross and follow him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.